I'm Steve Fisher. Those of us who live in the United States like to think we're number one. We're not. In 2021, the Legatum Prosperity Index rated the U.S. 20th out of 167 countries studied. We're 20th in education, 22nd in personal freedom, 23rd in governance, 27th in living conditions, 68th in health, and 69th in safety and security. Overall, not a pretty picture. Is it the fault of any administration, or were our institutions built on a bed of sand? Historian Kathleen Friedel has made it a point of studying those institutions. We have fallen grievously, grievously short, and that includes the moment of the founding itself. She's here to look at American Foundation on Life Slices. So we're going to start with an easy question. Who is Kathleen Friedel? Kathleen Friedel is a political historian of the United States, and she specializes in 20th century political history. And within that, because there was a lot of political history made in the 20th century, she specializes in institutions and particularly conservative state building. So those are the institutions of national security and federal law enforcement, and to some extent, conservative visions of social policy. And so that is her expertise. Kathleen Friedel is also a practicing Episcopalian, and I hope a loving daughter, friend, and sister. What would spark your interest in this category, which seems so precise? (laughs) You know, you don't grow up saying, gee, I want to be a political scientist and study institutional development. You know, That's interesting. So my parents are immigrants. They defected from what was then Czechoslovakia and is today the Czech Republic. And so the communist invasion of their country in 1968, today we would really call it the Russian invasion of their country in 1968, prompted them to defect. They were both active in what was called Prague Spring, which was this kind of democratic awakening within Czechoslovakia. And it's not unlike the Arab Spring. That's very familiar to most of your listeners, I would imagine. And so they found themselves in Vienna trying to make flight to a new country and build a life for themselves. And just because the plane for the United States left earlier, they hopped on the plane to the United States and they proceeded to build a life for themselves and for their two children. And that has deeply, deeply, deeply informed my sense of who I am in this world. Just the accident of fate that brought me to the United States with these blessed gifts of freedom, which I never take for granted. And so when I was a little girl and I would get in trouble at the principal's office, I would have to sit and wait outside and and look up at pictures of Martin Luther King Jr. and Jack Kennedy. And these people were my heroes. I mean, they were my parents' heroes and they were my heroes too. And as I pursued American history, I was really trying to understand more about who I was in this world. And the more seriously I took it, the more I found that actually... The programs and the designs and the speeches of Jack Kennedy paled in comparison in terms of power to the programs and the designs of people like Dwight Eisenhower and Ronald Reagan. And so I was really at the forefront of people who were trying to understand 
what power looked like in the 20th century. Not necessarily what we wanted it to be, but what power actually looked like in the 20th century United States. By no means was I alone in that, but I think my generation of scholars took conservatives and conservative history much more seriously than the generations that had preceded it. Did you spend a lot of time in the principal's office? I mean, you alluded to being a problem child. <laughs> you know, I did my time. I did do my time. And it, I have to say, and I, I'm sorry to kind of call him out like this, but it was really my brother's fault. <laughs> <laughs> so my brother, like any boy, got into fights um, on the playground. And, and I was a gymnast. And so I was kind of strong as, as girls go. And what's more damning and really is my fault is that I was and remain an extremely protective person. So anytime my brother got into a fight, that meant I got into a fight too. But I got to tell you, Steve, somehow or another, I was the only person who got called in to the principal's office. The boys never did. One of the things that led me to you was this piece you wrote for The Conversation, which I had never read before, The Conversation. It's an interesting publication. Your your piece was, the U.S. is becoming a developing country on global rankings and that measure democracy and inequality. Can you sum up your thesis in that? There are these global rankings usually run through the auspices of the United Nations that look at different variables, and the traditional rankings are very spare. They look at things like life expectancy, gross national income per capita, so the average income per person, and years of schooling. I mean, when I say they're very spare, they really are four or five variables. And then there are different, you know, the UN is a large bureaucracy, so there are different ways to measure development. And a lot of other countries started to say, well, there's more that goes into it than that. And so this piece in particular is a contrast in how the United States fares on those development measures which tend to be spare in nature and focus on wealth and wealth generation, and those other development metrics, which are far more expansive and focus on things like healthcare, access to clean air, clean water, criminal justice, the state of democracy, for example, far more expansive, in which the United States fares not so well and has in recent years actually taken quite a fall for a number of reasons, and I'm sure we'll get into them. But essentially, the piece is about, well, when you measure wealth, the United States comes out okay. When you measure the experience of ordinary people, actually, the United States does not come out very well. Yes, I've been saying that actually for a long time. And I was attributing it to certain political regimes in our country. And after watching the first episode of Ken Burns' new documentary on the U.S. and the Holocaust, I I realized that we've actually been going downhill since the Constitution. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, the Constitution and before it, the Declaration of Independence. And I would add to that all of those many chapters, which are so worthy of our aspirations that have been filed since then. So any speech from Frederick Douglass, Lincoln's Cooper Union address, Franklin Roosevelt's second inaugural, any any of those great declarations of dignity in 
of the ordinary person and any sort of articulation of that which is the best in the generative moment of the United States, the founding of this country, we have fallen grievously, grievously short. And that includes the moment of the founding itself, when the United States, of course, had a healthy hand in one of the worst crimes in recorded human history, which is chattel slavery. So it's this tug of war that we have. It's not unlike the tug of war each of us experiences as individuals. And so we can say there are times in our lives that we're doing better and there are times in our lives when we're doing worse. And this, to me, given the nature of the challenges we confront and what it is that we can marshal and bring into this moment, it seems to me this is one of those times when we're doing a little bit worse. And now, despite our diminution... See, I, I, I come up with these questions and I can't even say <laughs> Despite our diminution in the eyes of the world as to what this country is and what it represents, there are still many in this country who believe in American exceptionalism. Sure. Is that ignorance or willful ignorance? You know, that's, I have to tell you, Steve, for me, that's a very deep question. And it's one that I'm going to pause on. Because I think I could just sit here and shrug my shoulders and say it's willful ignorance, and there you have it. But in fact, all learning is an emotional process, and we all refuse to learn. Now, some of us refuse it more powerfully, powerfully than others, but this was the insight of the first generation of great education philosophers like John Dewey or Benjamin Rush, that learning was an emotional process as much as anything. And when I think about Auden's poem, where he says, we would rather be ruined than changed, I think we find so much of ourselves in that. And so I would say, at a certain point, there's no meaningful way to distinguish ignorance from willful ignorance, that we are an ex- in effect, experiencing a choice where we would rather be ruined than changed. Wow, that's kind of kind of frightening. It is frightening. I, to the best of my recollection, Auden's poem is called "The Age of Anxiety," and it and it is frightening. It's a profound expression of foreboding, and I hope that that's not true. I hope that the great part of the founding is that it can be, and the aspirations articulated in it, is that it can be repurposed and reinvented and regenerated with the hopes that we as a society could be reinvigorated. But when we cling to heritage rather than history, when we cling to a past that we refuse to understand in its full nature, then it seems to me that we would rather be ruined than changed. I have felt for a long time that this country was on a, has been on a downward path, and it bothers me. I consider myself a patriot, and I consider myself very strong believer of the goals that this country was founded on. And it, it bothers me when I see people fighting against that and claiming that's the political reality. Are we seeing a degradation of our institutions, or are we just waking up to the realization that they've never met the lofty goals to which they were intended? This is something I really struggle with, because when I try to articulate a vision that, in fact, government should act on behalf of ordinary Americans, when when you 
cast your mind back to history, of course, the American government was always presented as doing just that. But in fact, most Americans never felt enfranchised into the operations of our government, and particularly at the federal level. Now, in some technical sense, that was true for a great many of us, for African Americans, for African American women, and for women, we were not technically, and of course, non-landowning males were not technically enfranchised at various points in United States history. But I think there's something more to it than that. It's not just a case of, you know, can I legally show up at the polls and vote? But do I feel that my vote matters? Do I feel that my government, the stakes involved affect me and my life? And so when you think about that, there are actually various moments where American turnout was surprisingly high among eligible voters and people felt themselves really involved, especially in antebellum, like right before the Civil War. Um, voting turnout was extremely high. And then there were other parts and other times in American history when voting and the government was really the property of elites and particularly financial elites. And so when we look at the New Deal on and we look at our modern history, if we consider that our modern history, and I certainly do, that's really the point at which we can start to talk about most Americans look at the federal government and feel it somehow involves them. And they look at their political parties with the expectation that they will represent them. That's actually not true for a lot of American history, you know what I mean, when you go back in time. And so we're dealing with a fairly short, about 100 years, period of history when Americans have this expectation that that they not just are legally enfranchised, but in some sense, they're politically enfranchised as well. And they have some expectation that the government will work on their behalf. I have always been uh, against the political party system, the two-party mm-hmm. system. I, I mm-hmm. do I more subscribe to George Washington and John Adams' admonitions about it. And I feel that today is a prime example. Would we be better off with more political parties or no political parties? I published a piece in the American Prospect about a year and a half ago, I'm just looking at the calendar now, that the Republican Party will collapse as a national party, um, by which I mean an ability to command a presidential coalition. Mm -hmm. And with its collapse, we will enter into a multi-party system. Because actually, a two-party system is really, really strange. You know, it's really, really strange if you think about it. There are things that um, I agree with conservatives about and that they agree with me. A lot of them, for example, if you go to Montana in your average community, you will find a lot of support for keeping public schools open. I mean, you know, and they will fully identify as Republicans. And one of the issues and, and really the original sin of American politics is the way in which race has haunted us, first as chattel slavery and then later up until our present day as institutionalized racism. And so what I argue in this piece is that the ability of whiteness, and I mean here the politics of whiteness, to command a majority is actually disappearing. And with it, will disappear our two-party system because race has produced an artificial dichotomy where, in fact, there are many, many islands. 
many different islands of differences. And so our institutions, our election system, our, our first-past-the-post election machinery is poorly suited to a multi-party system. And yet I feel inevitably that is where we are actually going, including things like ranked choice voting and the growing popularity of things like that. I do feel that this w- the natural political fault lines that would appear in the absence of race and race being the defining issue Mm -hmm. in American politics, I think those fault lines will come to the surface and we will see a multi-party future. I don't know. I'm not prepared to sit here and say, would we be normatively better off? Um, But I do think that's where we're headed. I I think the problem with that would be that we could see people in power with a minority vote. Mm -hmm. and. That's a danger of a multi-party system. Well, and we do that already, right? I mean, mm-hmm. George George W. Bush did not win the popular vote, and yet he was president for two terms. So our electoral system, which was designed to make land vote more than people, is an anachronism that has allowed – I'm thinking back now and, and – to the best of my understanding, Stephen Douglas won more votes than Lincoln in the 1860 presidential election. It's just that Lincoln won the electoral count. So we have several instances, indeed, of people, and of course, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote as well. We do have, we have placed in power people who would be spurned in other countries as having lost the election. One of the things that bothers me is this need to put everybody into a box. Mm-hmm. You're a liberal or you're mm-hmm. a conservative. And I, I don't, and I think you alluded to it earlier, there are issues where I definitely lean in the liberal category, and there are other issues where I lean in the conservative category. Mm-hmm. So I put myself somewhere at center. I might lean left more often than I lean right. But still, I don't see myself as all one party or the other. Now, I mean, today I do. I, 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 find, <laughs> yeah. I find I have trouble not voting Democrat in this day and age. But there in my past, I have voted Republican at mm-hmm. times when it was more of a policy question, when there right. were actual policies we could latch on to and discuss Today, you don't know where anybody stands. Right. And I think that I don't want to be overly disparaging, but I also I take my cues from Lincoln. And and I think that you cannot find a middle ground between right and wrong. And you cannot. It's I mean, in his words, it's like finding a man who is neither dead nor alive. And so following that cue, I would say it's very obvious to most right-thinking, rational people that the Republican Party has taken a turn towards authoritarian politics, a conspiracist mode of thinking. Many people call it fascism. I have called it fascism. Other people are more comfortable with other terms to describe it. But there has been a turn within that party where one cannot summon a fact that matters to them because they are living in a context where facts do not matter. And so that is really an unavoidable truth about the political landscape that we are living in. And even though the Republican Party can command, depending upon what we're talking about and where we're speaking, somewhere between 35 to 43 percent of the vote, because our electoral system is designed the way it's designed and because power is what it is, we have to take seriously the threats that they pose. Now, 
when I talk about the collapse of the Republican Party, many people think I'm sort of celebrating it and dancing on their grave. And I want to make clear that part of that collapse will entail the formation of a very hard right-wing party. And part of it will entail a kind of Adam Kinzinger, Liz Cheney party that might be too conservative for the policy preferences of many, but will at least be rational and sane and mm-hmm. operating in a world that many people can understand and negotiate with and want to understand and want to negotiate with. Our country's unraveling is not something new. We've been going at this back and forth over the course of our history. Some historians, prominent ones who appear on the Talking Head channels, have in the past been defensive of it and saying, well, yeah, we've been here before and we've survived it and everything's been fine. Those same talking heads are now sounding more pessimistic. Are we headed for a civil war? Is a civil war inevitable or some kind of schism? Gosh, I don't know how to answer that because I cast my mind back to those moments where our future seems so precarious. So I think now of 1859 and 1860, I even think of 1939 and 1940. When Franklin Roosevelt instituted a peacetime draft, he was met with such profound resistance. And in particular, I'm thinking of the United States Army deciding to break up um, geographically discrete units because it found that German Americans in the Midwest were sympathetic to Hitler and were chowding Hitler in the during military drills. And that's at of course at a time when Charles Lindbergh, one of the most popular people in the country, is making speeches on behalf of fascism, on behalf of Mussolini and on behalf of Hitler. So too is Father Coughlin, probably the most popular radio show. So When you think about the times in which we were so finely poised on that needlehead and just the factors of love and luck that pushed the United States through and and what we would now call a welcome direction, I don't think that the place that we're in compares in gravity to 1859 or 1940, but at the same time, I don't think it's ever safe to bet on love and luck. In the past, we've benefited from those things, and it's a question of of whether we'll benefit from them again. Can we regain our prominence in the world, or do we have to just live with a new reality of where we are now? Oh, I definitely think we can. Like you, I identify as a patriot. I know that's not fashionable among academics, but I do. And and it has to do with the personal history that I explained to you at the top of this program. I definitely think so. And when I think about the people I know, the people I've loved, and the people I've see who I don't even know and how much they inspire me, just the the extraordinary grace of ordinary people in this country. I do think we have within us greatness. And so I definitely think so. But I think that like anything, it will take a very hard look at the power structure we have and a very hard look at ourselves, and that includes a hard look at our past and some real degree of of honesty and equanimity 
about what has happened and what we can do about it. We like to try to stay positive on on this show, and and we don't want people listening and then saying, I'm just going to go to sleep and not wake up. (laughs) That's very depressing. It's just why I've turned away from cable news, too, because I can't take the negativity of it. What is the upside of your work, and what can the average person do to help restore our norms and institutions? It goes back to what I was just saying and has to do with looking to government to work on behalf of ordinary Americans and looking to ourselves and our past with honesty. I want to point out, I led this discussion, and of course, this is something I discuss in the piece, that the Office of Sustainable Development measures many things and there are many variables they take into consideration. I think that's important. And among them are the environment. And I just want to point out that the United States scores extremely well on even some of the environmental factors like, for example, access to clean water. That is the result of infrastructural investments that were made. We are capable of organizing power so that it can serve and benefit ordinary Americans. As we approach this climate change crisis, I think that the language of the New Deal, which I know has been excessively associated with one particular approach to it, but I just think that the approach of the New Deal, that actually our government should be an active agent in spreading our resources so we can have access not just to clean water, but clean air. Because, of course, on the emissions category, we are among the worst in the world. So if we apply the thinking that resulted in the very good scores we enjoy to those places where we currently have very bad scores, then, of course, change can happen. And and we can move the needle forward in a way that would be meaningful even within our own lifetime. So we're not doomed and we shouldn't all be trying to become Canadian citizens. That The very opposite. The very opposite. This is where we should draw the line and say, and now I take my stand. I like that. Is there any question about you or your work that I haven't asked, but that you would like to answer? It's so funny, Steve, that you asked that because I guess the note I want to leave it on is the conversation is an interesting publication. I had never published with them before and their reach is very far and wide and I very much appreciate it. But one of the things that they allow for is for readers to contact you. They don't necessarily, readers don't necessarily get your email address, but they have a, a, a subscriber has a mechanism via which a message will reach you. And I noticed that I got a batch of messages from older Americans that were very, very sincere who really, really resented my emphasis on race and the importance of race in American history. And it's interesting to me as a girl who was in the principal's office looking up at a picture of Martin Luther King Jr. and identifying him as as a hero. It's interesting and, and important and unresolved the way in which so many Americans look, and I'm and I mean here specifically white Americans, look at that conversation about race with some degree of defensiveness. And I can only assume that it's because not everything in life has worked the way they wanted. They haven't necessarily always benefited from love and luck. And that's certainly true for me. I'm sure it's true for many of your listeners as well. And I wish there was a way I could just cast a wand and have people understand when we talk about institutionalized racism, I'm not cracking you open and peering down and looking into your heart. I'm talking about the legacies 
that have been written into our neighborhoods with residential segregation. So my first book is on the World War II GI Bill. What happens when the bill is written in such a way that African Americans cannot benefit from some of the most important features of the bill? How does that affect generations going on and on? I'm in no way trying to malign or dismiss the hardships and troubles of other people when I focus on this category of race. And so I guess that would be the thing that I would want to end on, because I think there's a conversation to be had about among white Americans about how institutionalized racism has led to a world where you don't have the health care you deserve. You don't have the housing you deserve. You don't have the environment that you deserve. And I wish there was a way I could, like I say, just cast a wand and change the emotional stakes of that conversation. Well, Kathleen, thank you. This has been enlightening and extremely interesting. I will be looking for more of your writings and where else can we find them? So in the American Prospect and in the Washington Monthly, the next place I will be found is in my forthcoming book. This would now be my third book, which will be on the corporate person. So the book is called The Most Privileged Citizen, The Modern Reinvention of the Corporate Person. Ooh, that sounds fascinating. We, you might, we might have to have you come back and talk about the corporate structure in the country. Oh, gosh. Yes, I would love it. Thank you, Steve. My thanks to Kathleen Friedel for helping us open our eyes to our national reality. But remember, we're not doomed. We can keep trying to make us better. Start by voting. In every election, big and small, demand better candidates and study the choices in those candidates and the ballot measures. And keep your head up. You could still be proud to be an American. If you enjoyed this program, please like us and subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beat the Gravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Feslian Studios. Thank you.